Episode 28, How the Seed of Local Self-Government is Planted. Welcome to the Principles and Practice Podcast. This is where we discuss biblical principles for life and learning. I'm your host, Heather Hall, and this is my co-host, Brian Hall. Welcome back, everybody, to the Principles and Practice Homeschool Podcast. Today, I am going solo. I hope that it's not boring for you to hear just my voice, but my husband's workload is kind of heavy with some projects that he's been doing around the house, so I get to do this um, by myself today to give him some reprieve from the responsibilities that he has going on right now. That said, we are continuing with our Teaching 10 series from the summer training course that is given by the Foundation for American Christian Education. There's actually a lot more content to this series that we're doing, but we're only going to teach some of it because some things are best learned in person and there are a lot of visual graphics that they use during the course that are kind of hard to convey over a podcast. So we'd like to just, I guess, whet your appetite with this, give you enough to give you some grounding or foundation of what the course is like and give you some things that you can go out and continue to teach 10 other people for yourself. And then hopefully you'll sign up for their summer course that is coming up this summer. And remember that the first year can be done online if you cannot be present in person for it. And then for years two and three, you need to be on the the foundation's campus for those courses. All that to say that following FTC's guidelines, letting you know that we don't receive anything for promoting or endorsing the foundation's uh, course. This is just something that we feel strongly is needed to equip Christians to help us with the cultural challenges and battles that we are facing today. Okay, so that all said, This is from a lecture that Dr. Max Lyons gave during the course, and he's highlighting in this about the importance of local Christian self-government. You'll remember from previous podcasts that the definition of government from Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language is direction, regulation, control, and restraint. And self is actually decentralized versus centralized. And Christian means of or pertaining to Christ. Local is defined as pertaining to a place or to a fixed or limited portion of space. We say the local situation of the house is pleasant. We are often influenced in our opinions by local circumstances. So some other things of note about local self-government is that it's a group instead of an individual, instead of a, a, a sole person. Of course, if there are two people who agree on everything, then one of them isn't necessary. So the more people you have who get together, the more difficult it is, especially if the worldview and the influencing principles are differing like they are today. And that makes me think of how Samuel Adams identified the importance of the principles. There's going to be, if the, if the states were going to be united, then they had to be united on principles. 
So that was one of his important works, was to help get Americans united on principles. Hopefully, defining those terms helps to clarify what we're talking about in the context of self-government. I know sometimes self is taken to mean egotistical or self-centered, but in, in this context, it refers to being decentralized. So when we go from Christian self-government to local Christian self-government, it looks like this. Christian self-government means me as an individual governing myself according to God's word and law. It's also Christ governing in me and through me. Whereas local self-government flows out of that more than one individual governing themselves according to God's word and law. This breaks down into different groups. It begins with a couple. That couple has a family. The family is extended. They become a part of a church. There are geographic groups that we live like in our neighborhoods. We have neighbors. And then there are voluntary associations like schools and nonprofits, clubs, athletic groups. And then businesses, corporations, small business, sole proprietorship. And then it expands outwardly into civil government. You've got cities, counties, state, and nations. So there is a biblical basis for local self-government. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we learn about how the Bible reveals that historically, the idea of local self-government was non-existent before God gave the moral law to the nation of Israel in about 1440 B.C., There are only two time periods in history when we've had a biblical form of government. The first time was before kings, and the second time was then when America was being established as a nation. Through the Mosaic laws, moral, civil, judicial, and ecclesiastical, God commanded every individual Hebrew to hear and obey his commandments in the context of their own local home and tribe. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9, and Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 25. Now, in Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 10, we learn, For what great a nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. It's commonly said that when God repeats something, that we need to pay extra attention to it. So just like with ancient Israel, Christians today have a responsibility to teach and inculcate in the minds and hearts of our children what God has done throughout history, including the history of our own nation. And we need to disciple our children in God's principles. So in Judges 2, 11 through 19, 1 Samuel 8, 7, 19, and 20, we learn about how 
Whenever the people spurned their responsibility to remember God and his laws and his mercies, they subsequently required a judge or demanded a king to rule over them. From A Guide to American Christian Education by James Rose, we read, This irreverence and irresponsibility did not absolve them from their duty as individuals to keep the law of God and govern themselves, their homes, and their tribes by it, even though it was a covenant of works which they could not keep because of recurring inherent sin. The history of Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, and other pagan nations reveals that political power was centralized in a king and flowed from a man-god to his few appointed princes and prelates who altogether controlled every aspect of national and local religious, political, and economic life. We see that an example of this in Exodus 1.8 and in Exodus 6.27. So I'll pause right here and using Webster's 1828 Dictionary. We're going to define the vocabulary word prelate because not everybody may know what that means. A prelate is an ecclesiastic of the higher order as an archbishop, bishop, or patriarch, a dignitary of the church. All right, so it's kind of a reminder is needed here where children aren't the only ones who give in to peer pressure. Liberty-loving people do this today as well. So whenever we're facing tyranny and we know that what's happening isn't correct, we know that it is not right, we know that it's counter to biblical principles, we have a responsibility to respectfully stand up to that tyranny. The devil is behind tyranny. He's behind destruction. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So again, we need to stand up and say, never again, never again, when tyranny comes knocking on our door and tries to take over. Unfortunately, we have fallen into accepting a little bit of tyranny here and a little bit of tyranny there, because there really isn't any place where the government doesn't have a say or control in areas of our lives. James Rose continues in the Guide to American Christian Education to say the history of Israel in the Old Testament is the exception because of their acceptance of one God and each individual's duty to be governed by his laws and its consequences for the home, tribe, and finally the nation. The Hebrews were governing locally and there's evidence of that principle of local self-government in the Hebrew Republic. For instance, land was divided into 600,000 parts, and the tenure was inalienable versus ownership by one or a few. So land was not centralized. It was decentralized. Magistrates were chosen by the people and ruled over thousands, one hundreds, fifties, and tens. And this is in comparison to leaders chosen through divine lineage We read about this in Exodus 18. Public officers were accountable to the people. That's in contrast to monarchs being accountable only to themselves or a quote-unquote lowercase god. This is what we know as the, the divine right of kings. Judges in every town assured quick justice. That was found in Deuteronomy 16, 18. 
and one nation was divided into 12 tribes and many families. In essence, Max Lyons points out that local self-government today is just like the whooping crane. It's an endangered species in America. Things become more expensive and complicated when government runs something and people aren't happy with it. Now, when we talk about centralized or decentralized government, we can create a T-chart. This is something you might want to do, you know, when you go back and listen to the podcast. Examples of centralized government are like Obamacare, Medicare for all, but decentralized in contrast to that would be individuals contracting with medical providers and private insurance companies. Another example of centralization is the Common Core, a national curriculum. And decentralization, in contrast, is thousands of curricular products, parents, teachers, and schools make the choices. And then example being given for centralization is Social Security. Conversely, if it were decentralized, individuals save and invest in private savings accounts to prepare for their future. Another example of centralized is government education, the Federal Department of Education, 4,000 employees, $68 billion, whereas decentralized education is private education, millions of homeschoolers, private schools, and Christian schools. Government welfare programs is another example of centralization, whereas if it were decentralized, welfare would be provided by millions of families, churches, and voluntary associations. Okay, and lastly, another example of centralization is top-down government control of business, hundreds of thousands of regulations. If things were decentralized for businesses, there would be 7.5 million self-governing businesses. When we come to the topic of centralization of education, there's a quote by Dr. A.A. Hodge, who is a professor of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he was giving a warning to the Presbyterian Church in the year 1890 about this. He said, I am as sure as I am of Christ's reign, that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education, separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling enginery for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social, nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen." Some people might claim that this man was a prophet. Look at what we have going on today because people did not heed his warnings about this. There's that cause to effect taking place. And this actually fits right in the um, chain of Christianity on the expansion and erosion link just prior to when John Dewey comes on the scene with progressive education. So at the same time, we have the father of American Christian education, Noah Webster, living and producing uh, the Blueback Speller for schools for American children so that they are learning about our principles of government. They're learning 
um, somewhat about religion and morals through the Blueback Speller in order to help with the morals of our country and to also help maintain our republic. Now back to the topic of decentralization. Ideally, in order to decentralize education, we want to go ahead and remove government overreach from the federal government because it should be handled at the state level and specifically education should be handled at the local level, the, the uh, county level. Now here's a question. What is the relationship between local church government and local civil government? Verna Hall in the Christian History of the American Revolution wrote, In the 20th century, we forget there once were exciting debates regarding the distinctives and merits of the three forms of ecclesiastical government, congregational, Presbyterian, and Episcopal. We take for granted the three forms as if they had always existed and were but a matter of choice. On the contrary, the Puritan movement in England was not only concerned with doctrinal matter, but also very much concerned with church polity and its effects in civil government. She also continued to say, the development of Christian civil government in America in the colonial period and in the formation of the American Christian Constitution is dependent upon comprehending these three forms of church government. Their arrangement of authority, representation, union, the flow of power, etc. For all three forms are represented in the structure of our Constitution and account for its delicate balances and need for self-governing Christians to make it operate properly. So where does this take us today? What can we do to help toward restoration? Well, we can turn to Teaching and Learning America's Christian History on pages 257 and 58. And I'm going to read about what Rosalie Slater said regarding patriotic letters and the committees of correspondence. These words have a special meaning for Christian liberty because they indicate the importance of ideas in overcoming tyranny. One of the great concerns in Sam Adams' heart was for the colonies to be united not by external bonds, but by the vital force of distinctive ideas and principles. He particularly wanted the colonists to be united in constitutional principles. His concern was not like the concern of today for information on the latest issues or the latest acts of tyranny upon individual liberty. It was a harder task to educate in principles than in issues. But Sam Adams knew that education and constitutional principles would result in lawful action, while a lack of such knowledge might result in riot and rebellion. In 1772, Samuel Adams proposed committees of correspondence in an educational effort to unite the colonies in knowledge, sentiment, and purpose. His idea was for each town to express itself and to write to other towns. Thus, town by town and colony by colony, each individual could not only become informed and educated, but could inform and educate others. Samuel Adams said, If each town would declare its sense of these matters, I am persuaded our enemies would not have it in their power to divide us. Rosalie Slater continues, 
but it takes a long time to educate in matters which require thought and consideration. Not all of the colonies responded, and if it had not been for Samuel Adams' great faith in the cause of independence and of the efforts of many individuals who contributed time and a great amount of energy, the project might have failed. But there were many hearts that kindled with devotion. They recognized the time approaching when these colonies would need to be united to resist the constant encroachment upon liberty and freedom. They felt that they were acting not merely for their country, but for humanity. Therein is the key, that each of us learn the principles and that we remember not to focus on the issues, but as Ben Gilmore taught me, at the root of every issue is at least one principle. And this is where I'm going to plug his book again, The Principles of American Government, because he does a great job on breaking this down for us. He does an excellent job of teaching the counter principles in contrast to the basic seven founding principles that Rosalie Slater highlighted. And um, it just really helps you helps to equip Christians for such a time as this. With that, I'm going to close this podcast episode and encourage you to go out and teach 10 more people. Have a great week. As always, if you're looking for additional resources or support, you can visit our website at principalacademy.com, check out our shop and our blog, and you can also find us on Facebook at Christian Homeschooling with Bible Principles, also on Instagram under Principal Academy. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Well, this is Heather Hall. And this is Brian Hall. For Christ and His glory.